You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you this morning. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 14. (coughs) Mark 14, and it would be really helpful if you went ahead and found Romans chapter 7 as well. Mark 14 and Romans 7. If you need a Bible, underneath every three or four seats, you should be able to find one. And so... uh, So it would really serve you to have that out and open there. So hang with me. It's going to take a while for us. We're going to have to lay down some serious road to get to our text in Mark 14 this morning. So so hang with me for a few. And it's going to be really important up front that you're that you're in on this, that you're that you're thinking, that that you're with me, that you're that you're locked in. Because if you don't get the front end, the back end's not going to be near as meaningful. So hang with me. Okay, so we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. You can sit in in Mark 14, Romans chapter 7, hang there, and we're going to get there. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 is the most catastrophic moment that's ever happened in the history of the universe. So if you think about what's happening in the first three chapters of the Bible, our good and gracious God has created our first parents, Adam and Eve, and he has put them in paradise, and he's given them one command, and it's going so great for all of two chapters. And then you get to chapter 3, and it starts on this ominous note where the Bible says in, in, in Genesis uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And in short order, this crafty serpent, Satan himself, was in conversation with Eve. And in short order, he had convinced Eve through this crafty little conversation, giving her every false reason why she should break covenant with her true God. Every false reason, in, in just short order, he baited the hook for her with all of these beautiful lies. And five, six verses later, in verse six of Genesis three, she took the bait and she bit. Now, it's so interesting to see what happens in that moment. The next verse in Genesis chapter three, verse seven, you're seeing this, that, that, that sin like a virus then invades and infects everything in creation. And then in Genesis 3, 7, look, look at the next thing that happens. So, so Adam and Eve, they bite into the fruit. They, they break God's law. They're actually guilty of breaking his law. And then this happens in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, that's an interesting just thing to kind of think through there. That they knew in that moment that something was wrong. See, and when it says that they knew they were naked, it's saying more than, oh, no, I need clothes. It, you know, when, when part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that God stamps us with his moral law. That God stamps that into the deepest parts of a human soul. That we're stamped with, with a recognition of what God says is right and wrong, summed up in the Ten Commandments. That we're, we've all been stamped by that. And now in this moment in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, it's the first time where they have now broken what God has said is right and good and, and, and acceptable for them. They've broken that. And now for the first time, that conscience, that inner voice in them, that stamping of God's moral law turns on them. And for the first time, they feel that sense of condemnation that comes from that inner voice that is showing them, you have done wrong. You have broken God's laws here. You have disobeyed God. You, you, you are now stained by sin. You are now guilty of sin. See, that's what's being expressed in that feeling of nakedness. Now, I, I wish we could say that feeling was just a Genesis 3, our first parents thing. But the Bible is going to lay out in very clear ways that it's not just our first parents who have sinned against God, but that all of their descendants, you and I included, that, that sin is a universal thing. 
It's, it's in your life, it's in my life, it's in every human being's life. And because we have all been stamped with the image of God and God has given us this moral compass, this inner voice that says this is right and this is wrong, every human being on the face of the planet has a deep sense of, oh no, I am guilty before God. Every human being has that. Regardless of what they want to say or don't say, every human being has that inner voice stamped in them by God to show them that. Maybe we could think of it this way. We could picture it in terms of a courtroom. That, that in a very real sense, from Genesis 3 on, every single human being knows that they are in God's courtroom. And that they are guilty in that courtroom. That they've actually broken God's law and that he is now looking on them as judge and will bring justice. Every human being, regardless of whether or not they would admit that, has a sneaky suspicion that when the dust settles and the smoke clears that we're going to have a real problem with God. Now when you get to Romans 7, this is what we're seeing in Paul. In Romans 7, he is talking about God's law. And he's talking about this idea that that God's law is good. God's law is not a bad thing. God's law is actually a good thing. It shows us what God expects from his sons and daughters. God's law is a good thing in that it shows us what we are and what we aren't. Namely, we aren't very good at keeping God's law. That we, we are a long way from living in God's perfect standard of righteousness. That we actually have a problem with God. Namely, we have violated his law. The, the law of God shows us that. But then he also talks about in Romans 7, how the law of God stirs up and activates that inner voice, our conscience that God has stamped in us. The law activates that. It, it, it gives something for that inner voice to scream at us. So so it activates that sort of a thing. And then you get to the end of Romans 7, in verse 24, Paul is thinking about God's law. He's thinking about how it's activated this inner conscience in him that's screaming at him, you have got something wrong with you. You have broken God's law. You're guilty. And then at the end of Romans 7, Paul, and I think if you could hear Paul saying this, he would be screaming it. I don't think it would be just a soft little thing here. I think he's, he's on the brink of despair in, in verse 24 when he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? See, this is what he's seeing here. That because of God's law, he's broken God's law. And, and now his inner voice, that, that conscience in him, is now condemning him for breaking the law. He now realizes that he really is a wretched man in God's sight. He's realizing that he is guilty before God. Okay, now, I want you to think now, right here. That, Romans 7, 24, Paul's experience there is a universal human experience. Every person feels that. Every person. There's not a person alive who doesn't feel the same sense that Paul feels here. Wretched man that I am, who is going to deliver me from this body of death? That voice right there is in every single human being. I like to refer to that voice as the inner drill sergeant. You know that voice, what I'm talking about? That inner voice that is so condemning. That inner voice that is so belittling. And listen, in a lot of ways, I don't want to paint the picture that that is all a bad thing. In a lot of ways, a good conscience is a gift from God to show us our problem, namely our sin, and to point us to God's solution, namely Jesus. But if we're not careful, that conscience in us, that inner voice in us, that that condemning drill sergeant voice, especially when hijacked by Satan, can absolutely pulverize us. I mean, just ground us into into the ground. 
Ed Welch, he is a counselor and author. He, uh, he teaches uh, several classes a year. And over the course of time, he has had literally thousands of students come through his classes uh, teaching biblical counseling to them. And he always does this informal poll kind of throughout uh, you know, the semester where he's trying to test how guilty do people feel? How, how pulverized are people feeling by that inner voice of self-condemnation? That, that inner voice, that drill sergeant voice that is just running them into the ground. How condemned do people feel in that? And he estimates in his classes that 85 to 90% of his students are right now presently in the moment struggling with that. That they feel a sense of overwhelming, I am a wretched man. An overwhelming drill sergeant just pulverizing them into the ground. That they feel an overwhelming sense of that. And this last week, and by the way, my pastoral experience would, would lead me to say, I think that number is right. That I think when I'm dealing with a room like this, that I would say 85 to 90% of us right now, if we have a moment of silence just long enough to consider it, we are being driven by that inner drill sergeant. We are being pulverized by that inner drill sergeant. Last week, um, as I was just thinking about this, I started to ask people the question, what, is, what does that voice sound like? How loud is it, one, and what does it sound like, two? That inner drill sergeant. And let me just give you a sampling. And I'm talking like, these are guys who are walking with Jesus. These are guys who are, who are really down the road in sanctification in a lot of areas. And listen to some of the things that I heard back from them on how loud it was and what it's saying to them, that inner drill sergeant. You're an idiot. You ever heard that one? Number two, you're a failure. In really loud ways, you're a failure. You'll never be able to make it. Just wait until people find out who you really are. Then see what they do. Number five, you're worthless. You ever hear that one? You're still struggling with the same sin this far down the road? Like how many times, seriously, how many times are you gonna keep struggling with that voice? You're a joke. You can't do it and you never will do it. You're a, you're a poor excuse for a Christian, an even worse husband and an even worse father. God's likely really disappointed with you. You're probably just like barely in the family if you are, are at all. You know those voices? Now just take a second. I want you to think about what that inner drill sergeant sounds like for you. Give some words to that voice for a moment. I mean, I'll just, you know, when I think about that question and trying to encourage a person to answer it, it goes to some of the core places in our heart, some of the most sensitive places in our heart. But we need to think for a second, what does that voice sound like in you? That inner voice of self-condemnation, that inner drill sergeant, when it is just pulverizing you, what does that voice sound like? Man, it's been interesting. I, I've told the crew that I've been running with that over the last few weeks, man, I have been, that voice has been so stinking loud in my life. So loud. I was telling my home group here um, recently and to some of the staff and some of the, the guys I'm running with just on what some of that has sounded like. I mean, the, for the last several months when I've just sat down to attempt to write a sermon, that voice has been so stinking loud saying things, just screaming things like this. You have nothing to say. What, what are you doing? If people only knew who you were, no one would be at your church. No one would be. It was interesting. I got an email here um, recently from a guy that um, was asking me to step into a few roles in kind of the church planning network that we're a part of. And 
So it, it basically it was an email that said, why don't you fill out this survey of ways that you think you might could contribute to that and would be helpful, and we'll kind of take it from there. And I opened that, that email and looked at the survey, and as soon as I started reading down through it, it had like 10 or 15, 20 areas that, that maybe you could be a good contribution, you know, to the network. Um, when, I, when I started reading that email, that inner drill sergeant started screaming, you know like 30 people that would be better at every one of those things than you are. There is, you have nothing to contribute to this. There is no way you could do that or should do that. And literally, this is what happened in that moment. I shut the email, closed the email, and I didn't respond until a week later when the guy emailed me back. Just that inner drill sergeant just pulverizing and, and just you know, running us into the ground. Now with that, here's what I wanna get. That is a universal human experience. There is not a person in this room who doesn't deal with that drill sergeant. There's not a person in here. And one of the most important skills that a Christian can develop is to learn how do we deal with that voice? What do we do with that voice? How do we operate around that voice? What do we do with this? How do we respond to that inner drill sergeant? Now, I want to give you just real briefly the three ways I think you can respond to it. Here's way number one that people respond to it. This universal experience of wretched man that I am that Paul has in Romans 7. Here are the three ways people respond to it. Number one, the first way is the way of, of denial, of denial. And, and there's really, I think, two primary faces that the, the way of denial, like trying to deny that voice, there's two primary ways that comes about in our life. And here's the first one. Some people deny by suppression. Now, this is my default mode. So if I think of that drill sergeant voice, here's, here's what I'm attempting to do in most moments of my life. I'm trying to find the closet back in the back room of my heart that's furthest away from me. I'm trying to get that drill sergeant and throw him in that back closet, lock the door and pray to God that he doesn't come out. You know what I'm talking about? I'm just trying to get away from that thing. Like here he is, let's get him way back there. Now here's the problem with that, den denying by suppression. Anytime our life gets quiet for just a moment, there's just enough silence for us to actually be able to hear in our life. Here's the first thing that begins to happen. We begin to hear the screams from that back closet. As soon as it gets silent in our life. It was really interesting. I read this um, a couple of weeks ago that the University of Virginia, a guy named Timothy Wilson, did this study where they were trying to figure out how long could a person entertain themselves with their own thoughts. So they brought these people into a room, plain room, just them by themselves in the room. No paper, no pencil, no TV, no anything. Just them alone in a room. And, and the job was you sit here for like 10, 12 minutes and just you just enjoy your own thinking. Just we give you silence for a few minutes. And just in a matter of moments, these guys were bouncing off the walls. They could not do it. Now to press this a step further, they hooked these people up in this room, put them in this room. You're just gonna sit here, enjoy your own thoughts. They hooked them, th these people up to an electric shock machine. An electric shock machine. And here was their thing. They said, just enjoy your, your own thoughts for a moment. And here's what they found. 70% of the guys in that room began to shock themselves in a matter of a few moments to distract themselves. Rather than being alone with their own thoughts, they would hurt themselves to distract themselves. Now, the question is, what is going on in that moment? Why is that? Why is it so hard for us to be alone with our own thoughts? Answer. Because as soon as we get quiet, that voice from the back room starts to scream. That's the reason a lot of us run to our iPhones. 
Just if we have a moment of downtime, we, we turn on the radio, we, we grab our book, we get to the next project. We have a million ways to distract ourselves so that no silence can exist just to keep the white noise level high enough where we don't hear that. It's denial by suppression. But here, here's another way you can deny, uh, you know, th- there's another way to go about it. And that's by redefinition. Not, not suppressing it, but re- redefining it. This is the other way to go about it. We start to shout b- back at that inner drill sergeant, you don't know what you're talking about. What's wrong with you? You don't know who I really am. We start to talk back like that to it. So let me just give you an illustration of this. Last week we talked about, and we, let's just say on the biblical you know, husbandry side of this last week, the calling of God on a man in, in the context of a marriage. And the illustration we used in, in one point of that sermon was the idea of this oak tree, that God has called a man to be an oak tree in his home that provides this shade and protection and security so that everyone else, wife and kids in the home, can have a safe place to flourish, to grow up spiritually, to grow up emotionally, to grow up physically. That this is the job of a husband. This is is what it looks like to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Now, in that moment, if if your name is not Jesus Christ, that's going to cut you right to the core if you're a man and you're married. Because you're going to realize in that moment, man, I am not that. I am very far from the perfect oak tree. I've got all sorts of gaps in my oak tree. It, 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 you know, there's sun you know, pointing down all through it. I'm just not perfect at this husbandry thing. And here's what a lot of us do when that inner drill sergeant takes that illustration of you're to be in an oak tree. This is your calling from God as a husband. Our inner voice comes and that drill sergeant just pulverizes us with it. That's what you should be. And here's our response. Here's how a lot of people respond to that. No, no, inner drill sergeant. No, no, you don't know all of me. I mean, I may not be the oak tree that, that uh, you know, I may not be the oak tree that like provides the, you know, place to, for my family to, to like grow and flourish emotionally and spiritually. But like, I mean, I'm nailing the provision side. I mean, there's nobody in my house starving to death, so I'm doing an okay job. Now, here's the problem in that moment. If that's the way you're trying to address and deal with that inner voice, the problem in that moment is you're not telling the truth. You're not doing a good job. What you've done is redefine the job outside of the biblical standards for the job. But that's not doing a good job if your deal is, I'm gonna like bring home the bacon, but who cares about how my family's doing spiritually and and emotionally, right? I mean, so so that's not what God has called us to. But listen, we dealing with the voice by saying, no, I'm doing a great job. You don't know, that never works. It never works. That is not the way. Satan will always find a chink in your righteousness armor. When when you're trying to convince, you know, the accuser that no, you've really got it together. He'll always find a chink in that armor. That's not the way. Denial is never the way by suppression or by redefinition. It's never the way to deal with that voice. That's how a lot of people try to, you know, try to get around it. Here's the other way that people address that voice and deal with that voice. One way is denial. The other way is despair. The other way is despair. So what happens for these people is they try to lock that inner drill sergeant in the back closet, but the guy just keeps busting out of there. They try to suppress that inner voice that's so self-condemning, but they just can't keep him locked up back there. And, and, and you, you, know, you open your eyes and he's back in the living room and he's just pulverizing you over and over again. I mean, it is like Mike Tyson, heavy hands, throwing right hook after right hook and just leveling you. And what happens to a person in that moment is we just cover up and beg for mercy. 
Like literally, you know, when the heavy hands start being punched and start, you know, being thrown, we crawl over to the corner into the fetal position and just cry. See, we're not shouting back at the inner drill sergeant, the despair people. We're not shouting back. We're in the corner crying for mercy from the inner drill sergeant. That's the other way. That, that, you know, maybe you could think of it this way. For, for these people, defeat and despair characterize their life. That inner drill sergeant just has them pushed into a corner. They can do nothing about it. They're just helpless and hopeless over there. Now, let me just one kind of a side note here. In Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the importance of putting on the armor of God. Now, now he gives a couple of reasons for that. Namely, that, that you know, Satan has schemes and there's going to be an evil day when Satan rears his head in a really big way in your life. And I think a big part of what that day of evil looks like for a lot of people is when Satan takes a perfectly good conscience and hijacks that conscience to now it's this really loud drill sergeant that absolutely kills us. I think that is a huge part of what Satan's schemes are in our lives. So if we're going to put it in a picture, maybe you could think of it like this. A normal, healthy conscience should be a conscience that if you think of it in terms of a car, is going down the road at the proper speed limit. The speed limit's 65, we're going down the road at 65. That's a properly functioning conscience. But in the day of evil, when Satan hijacks our conscience, he steps on the gas pedal, and now we're, our conscience is no longer doing 65, going down nice, easy pace. Now it's doing like 125, running over everything in its sight. Another imagery for it. The day of evil is that moment when the drill sergeant that is normally functioning in our life, Satan puts a megaphone in front of that guy, and now that voice is so loud that we can hear nothing other than that voice. I think that's what the day of evil looks like for so many of us in the room. We, we just get over into the corner, beaten to death by this voice, by that inner drill sergeant, by, by Satan and his accusations against us. And I would even go, you know, maybe one step further and say this. I think one of Satan's primary strategies for a lot of us in the room to totally disable Christians is this. By, by you know, Mike Tyson coming out of the closet, right hook, you're in the corner, in the fetal position, crying for mercy, absolutely paralyzed in your sin. So that when we hear the oak tree analogy, we're not screaming back, redefining, you know, what it is, our, you know, our job. We're saying, yes, you're totally right. And our response to, yes, you're totally right, wretched man that I am, is we get in the fetal position and just bail, paralyzed, can't do anything. Those are the primary two ways that people deal with that, with that drill sergeant. But I want to present the third way. This is what Mark 14 leads us into. There's, there's another way to deal with that voice, and Mark is showing us how to deal with it. What, what we're to do about that voice, how, how we're to respond to that voice, and Mark 14 is the answer. Look at verse 53. This is, this is the way we're to deal with this voice. Maybe you could think of it this way. It's the way of dependence. Not, not denial, not despair, but dependence. Look at how, it, how it's going to show it here. Verse 53, Mark 14. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. Look at verse 56. For many bore 
false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Verse 59. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. If you want a summation of that paragraph, you could think of it this way. Jesus was falsely accused. This is what we're seeing here. He is falsely accused in this moment. In in these courts, they had very strict protocols that would protect the person accused. Like witnesses actually had to like agree with one another. They had all of these protocols. But in this moment, they bypassed all the protocols. They went and grabbed any person off the street that would testify against Jesus, brought him into the room, and they began all of these false accusations. Like as if, for instance, he said he's going to destroy the temple. That is not what Jesus said in Mark 13. 1, 2, and 3, he said this, the temple is going to be destroyed. Not one stone left upon another, but he did not say, I'm going to destroy it. It was a false accusation. In this passage, what we are seeing is Jesus is falsely accused as he is on trial. Let's keep reading. Verse 60. Not only is is he falsely accused, but now read. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Against the high priest, again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? Verse 64, you have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And you might underline this phrase. And they all condemned him as deserving of death. They all condemned him as deserving of death. They looked at the sinless son of God and in the moment of having to make a decision, what do we think about this person? What are we gonna do with this person? Their response is, and they all condemned him. Then you get to verse 65, and some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy, and the guards received him with many blows. Now the question is, what is going on in this text? What is it trying to show us here? What what is the point of this? Now think about this in the context of Mark. Mark has 16 chapters, and it's interesting to think that six of the 16 chapters deal with the last few hours of Jesus' life, the last week of his life. Like the gospels are about his life, but all of the gospels are about the end part of his life. This is, this is the main portion of what the gospels are trying to get across to us. Now, why is that? The reason is because the last week of Jesus' life is the reason that he came. It like, it like encapsulates what his purpose is and, and why he came in the first place. And th- you know, if you just start reading through the gospel of Mark that leads up to chapter 11, you're gonna see that over and over again, Jesus is reminding his disciples of this. Three times he tells them, hey, th- this is what's about to happen. We're gonna get to Jerusalem. I'm gonna be falsely accused. I'm gonna be handed over to the chief priest and I'm gonna be condemned to death. That's what's about to happen. In, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he, sa- he clarifies. He says, Melissa, I did not come to be served. I came to serve. Here's what that looks like. I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. That is the reason that I've come. 
So all of these little scenes that we're seeing in Mark 14 here and in the following weeks as we kind of get into Mark 15 and then into 16, all of these little scenes are the raw material that make up the good news of Jesus. Now the question is, what is this one in particular trying to show us? It's highlighting this particular theme. I'm going to say it this way. This will be on the screen for you. That Jesus was falsely accused and condemned so that even when we're rightly accused, we can be pardoned. This is what he's trying to show us. That Jesus is falsely accused and Jesus is condemned so that when you and I are rightly accused, like when we actually stand guilty before God, we can be pardoned. Now, welcome to like the big kind of umbrella storyline of the Bible. The storyline of the Bible goes like this. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were put in the garden, created by a good, merciful God. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the description of God in the scriptures. But that God is also just. He gave them one command. Just don't eat of that one tree. They broke that command. And when they broke that command, here comes sin into the world. And because God is just, he has to respond justly to their sin. He banishes them from the garden, kicks them out of the garden, and kicks them out of his presence. And the same problem our first parents had, the same problem we have. We all have that same sin nature. We have all broken God's law. And because God is just, he is now looking at us and he's saying, You are now out of my presence. I'm banishing you from my presence. This is all of our problem. The deepest problem you have and I have is we do not have the presence of God in our life. That is the deepest problem we have. And here is the great news of the gospel is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life. Now think about this. In every place you failed, Jesus succeeded. In every place you fell, Jesus stood. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to stand in our place, to to enter into God's courtroom of justice for us. And in that courtroom of justice, everywhere that we're rightly accused, where we, like Paul, can really say, we are wretched men. In every moment that we feel that, in every moment that that is true about our life, Jesus stood in our place in the courtroom of God's justice and all of our guilt, all of our condemnation came crashing down on his head. He got all of our imperfection. He got all of our sin, all of our stumbling, all of our failings. We get all of his perfection. That's the good news of Jesus in a nutshell. Now, this is what Paul knew. This is what Paul knew. This is why he says in Romans 7, leading into verse 8. See, this is his admission. The inner drill sergeant comes and listen to the way he responds to him. He doesn't respond to the inner drill sergeant by, by denying him. He doesn't respond to that inner drill sergeant in despair. Watch how Paul responds to the inner drill sergeant. Verse, or chapter, or Romans 7, verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He is feeling deep in his soul, I am guilty before God. I am condemned before God. The the drill sergeant is pulverizing him in verse 24. But watch how he responds, verse 25. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Skip over to chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now, now, In light of the good news of Jesus, when any human being who is guilty before God puts their faith in Jesus, trusts and treasures Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's it's gone. 
everything that that drill sergeant is saying, we can look at and say, yes, you're right. But here's the deal. In Jesus, it's all paid for. The, the, the deficit is all made up. You're right, but Jesus has paid the bill. See, what Paul is reminding us of in Romans 8.1 is that when you become a Christian, when you, when you are adopted into God's family, when you, when you put your faith in the person and work of Jesus, you trust and treasure him. At that moment, God goes from being your judge to your father. No longer are you in the courtroom. You are now in the family of God. And from that point forward, listen to this. From that point forward, God is 100% absolutely irrevocably for you for the rest of your life. That's what, that's what he's alerting us to. That's how you deal with this inner voice. Not denial, not, not to suppress it, not, not despair, but you get to claim the perfect work of Jesus in your place. Now, let's just try to make this really practical, and I just want to kind of end by giving you some illustrations of this. If you're a Christian, you know this in the room. That good news is really hard to believe, isn't it? Now, think about that. It's not, it's not hard to believe because it's bad news, but because it's such good news. Like, there's something that's triggered in us that says, that is too good to be true. There's no way that could be true if it's that good. And this is the, the wild reality of the good news of Jesus, is it actually is. It's actually true good news, but it's hard to believe that. And saints throughout the years have known this. This is why a, a lady named Charity Smith in 1863 wrote the hymn, Before the Throne of God Above. Now let me read you the lyrics of this. It should be on the screen for you, I think. Here's what she says. Is it? Nope, it may be not. So you have to listen. Here's the lyrics to Before the Throne of God Above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Now, are we seeing that? This is the day of evil. The drill sergeant comes out. He's condemning. He's belittling. He's pulverizing. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Here, here's the response. Not to deny, not despair. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That Jesus is falsely accused and condemned so that when you're rightly accused, when you feel that drill sergeant starts screaming in your life and he's rightly accusing you, you can look back and say, but, but because of Jesus, I'm pardoned. But because of Jesus, I'm cleared. I, I love how um, Martin Luther describes it. There's this one story of Luther. And, and Luther is one of the guys that was really at the center of the Protestant Reformation back in the 1500s. And Luther was unique um, in that he had such a tender conscience Man, the man just had a really wounded conscience. It did not take much at all to just wound him right to the core. And, uh, you know, he's got all of these epic battles of just dealing with that. But, but one story is told of him. One night he's, he's having a dream. And in the middle of that dream, Satan just begins accusing and convicting and, and harming and maiming. And just, I mean, pulverizing him. 
And here's how he recounts it. He said in the middle of that, that dream, he woke up and Satan was just one after another throwing these darts. Do you know who you are? Do you know how pathetic you are? Do you know that you're full of anger? You're full of greed. You're full of lust. You're just power hungry. The whole thing that you're doing here, it's all a result of power. It's all a result of your pride. And, and it, as the story goes on, it says that Martin Luther, he, he looked back up at Satan and he said, is that all? And Satan said, no, that's not all. We're going to keep going for a second. Do you know how self-righteous you are? Do you know how full of iniquity you are? Look at yourself. You're a poor excuse for a Christian. Just goes on and on and on. And Luther finally looks back again and says, are you finished now? And Satan looks back and says, for now I am. And, and then Luther, it says, he goes on to respond like this. I can't deny a single charge, but write over every one of them the blood of Jesus. Now that's the way you fight against that voice. It's not to deny. It's not to try to suppress it. It's not to live in despair. It's to live in dependence upon the good news of Jesus. To know that right now in your life, every one of your besetting sins, your addictions, over the top of that writes, free, pardoned, not guilty. And every one of your little weaknesses, pardoned. And in every one of your, your sins, like lust, like immorality, like your self-righteousness. In every one of those areas, over every one of them is written this, pardoned. That they're rightly accused, but they're pardoned because of the good news of Jesus. Now here's the question. <coughs> Do you know how to handle yourself like that? That is called preaching the good news of Jesus to yourself. Why? Because we're so prone to forget it. Can you handle yourself that way? It's interesting. People will sometimes ask the question, what is the difference between like the accusations of Satan on one hand and the convicting work of the Spirit on the other? And I think this is the clearest way just to cut right through the middle of that. It's here, here's what Satan's aim is, is to show you your sin, then to have you run from God in your sin, to, to live in despair over your sin. But here's the convicting work of the Spirit. It's to show you your sin. See, you need a healthy conscience in both of those. See, it's to show you your sin, but then to point you to Jesus. Amen. See, that's the work of the Spirit in you. See, the accusations point you to your sin and then paralyze you in your sin. Conviction points you to your sin, then points you to the remedy, namely Jesus, for your sin. See, and the question is, do you know how to handle yourself that way? To make sure that you're remembering Jesus and his perfect work in the midst of also being reminded of your sin. John Bunyan, I'll just finish with this one. There's one more illustration of this. John Bunyan wrote the uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, in church history, outside of the Bible, it's the most widely read Christian book. So just a, an incredible guy. He was a pastor back in the uh, 16, 1700s, Puritan guy. And he had a note, like Martin Luther, he was like him in a lot of ways. He had a notoriously sensitive conscience. I mean, he could just be pulverized in a moment by that inner drill sergeant. And then he goes on to say this, and this should be on the screen for you. In his autobiography, he goes on to say this. He says, but one day as I was passing through a field, suddenly I thought of a sentence. So he's just being pulverized. I mean, just any little thing and his conscience just goes berserk on him. And he says, I, I thought of a sentence. And that sentence was, your righteousness is in heaven. And he goes on. And with the eyes of faith, I saw Christ sitting at God's right hand. And suddenly I realized there is my righteousness. And whatever I was or whatever I was uh, doing, God could never say to me, 
your righteousness is insufficient, for it was always before him. I saw that my good frame of heart could not make my righteousness better, and my bad frame of heart could not make my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday and today and forever. And now my chains, and he goes on, and now my chains have fallen off. I felt delivered from my slavery to guilt and fears. My doubts fled away. And now I also went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Now, how many of us in this room this morning could use that to go home rejoicing because of the grace and love of God? I want to finish by telling you a story from uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. So, um, you know, in the Pilgrim's Progress, it's, it's all allegory. So he's using allegory to describe the Christian life. And in particular, he's got one scene that I just love that describes what do you do with the drill sergeant? What, what do you do with that inner voice that is so self-condemning? What do you do with that thing? And so here's, here's the scene that he pictures in it. So you've got Christian. Now, I love how the book just calls them what they are. So the, the main character is Christian. He's on his way. He gets saved. He, he goes to the gate, and he's on his way to heaven, the celestial city. And so there's this straight and narrow path. It's like the path of obedience, the path of doing what it is that God would say to do. And he's walking on this straight and narrow path. But all of a sudden, he sees this, this wide path open up beside him, and he, and he veers off the straight and narrow, and he goes down this, this other path. It's this picture of sin in the Christian life. We, we leave the straight and narrow, we leave the commands of God, and, and all of a sudden we're venturing off in a, in a wrong direction. So he's going down this wrong path, the picture of sin, and all of a sudden as he's going down this, this wrong path, the giant of despair comes and grabs him. He, he, he's, the giant of despair just overtakes him down this path. Now, now listen, just make sense of this for a second. Is this not so often our, our life that, that you know, Satan tempts us to get off the path and then as soon as he does, he condemns us in it. So, so we've sinned, that Christian has sinned. He, he's walked off the straight and narrow path and then he's grabbed by the giant of despair. And the giant of despair takes him back to his castle. And you know what his castle is called? The castle of doubt. So you see the picture? He's gotten off the straight and narrow. He's sinning. And all of a sudden, the giant of despair grabs him in his sin, pulls him back into his castle called doubt. And in the castle of doubt, the giant of despair just beats Christian, I mean, without mercy. I mean, every day, every night, just beats him to a pulp. And then um, it's interesting because at night, the giant would leave the castle and he'd go home. And that's where you're introduced to the giant's wife. And uh, the, the wife would ask him, uh, man, how, how was your day today? And the giant would respond, man, it was great. I, you wouldn't believe what I did to Christian. Man, this morning I beat him up like this. This, you know, this evening I beat him up like that. And then you start to realize that she's the one actually giving him the orders. She looks at him and says, now tomorrow, why don't you do this? Why don't you beat him up first thing in the morning? Then the next day it's, why don't you show him the skulls of all these people you have killed in the castle of doubt? Why don't you show him all of that? And then you're introduced to the wife's name. It's an interesting name. Her name is Diffidence. Probably have to look that one up, right? Old English. And uh, it's, it's the word shyness or mistrust. Now think about what John Bunny is trying to get across here. He's showing us that in the middle of being, you know, enslaved and locked into the castle of doubt, beaten up by the giant of despair, that one of our main problems, that the, 
the thing behind this, the thing causing this is our mistrust of God. That in those moments, we get really shy. We're, we're beaten up. We're over in the corner crying, being condemned by our conscience. And rather than running to God, actually believing in his promises, namely that we are fully pardoned. That yes, we are guilty, but in Jesus, we are pardoned. Rather than running to God as a father in that moment, we shy away from God. We, we, we have this mistrust that that good news, it, it couldn't be true for my life. There's no way I could have no condemnation right now. And then as the story goes on, it's this really interesting ending to this part of the story. Finally, Christian realizes he's got a key in his pocket that he'd forgotten about. He's got a key. It's been right there all along, but he forgot the key. And finally, he looks down, he grabs the key. You know what the key's name is? Promise. He grabs the key called promise. And you know what he realizes? That that key unlocks all of his shackles and every door in the castle of doubt to free him from the giant of despair. Okay, now what is he saying in that moment? He, he, this is exactly what I'm trying to convince all of us of today. That when the giant of despair is just pulverizing us, the drill sergeant is screaming at us. What so many of us do is exactly what Christian does. We forget we have the key in our pocket. The key is called promise. Namely, all of these promises that flow to us because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We forget that. We forget the key that unlocks the castle doors. We forget the key that unlocks the shackles. And rather than being unlocked and freed and, and living in the promises of God, we stay in the castle of doubt being beat up by despair. I mean, I want to remind you this morning that there is a promise called the good news of Jesus that unlocks them all for us. And if you want to be reminded of them, let me just read a section from, from Romans 8. What, what are these promises? Here would be some of them. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is 100% absolutely irrevocably for you because of Jesus. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who has died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height or debt nor anything else like your sin in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.